0: As the kids are making their way to their classroom, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 11. As we're making our way through our study of Romans, we're launching into chapter 11 this morning. And as we do, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a understanding of where we are in this book, or at least... Where chapter 11 fits here. The theme of chapter 11, we'll take a few weeks to walk through this chapter. The theme of this chapter is the title of this sermon God has not rejected Israel. God has not rejected her people, his people. There are three sections of chapter 11. The first section is verses 1 through 10, where God gives. Evidence, or Paul gives evidence for why God has not rejected Israel in the present. And then the second section is 11 through 32, where Paul gives evidence for why God has not rejected his people in the future. And then, of course, we have the final section, verses 33 through 36, which is Paul's doxology, pulling a drawstring around the first half of the letter, Before he launches into the practical section, more practical section that is beginning with chapter 12. So we're going to take a couple of weeks to go through the first part of chapter 11, the first verses 1 through 10. And that section itself is um, comprised of three sections as well. First of all, verses 1 and 2, or at least through the first half of verse 2, we have Paul's familiar Debate with himself this rhetorical question and answer time where he, where he says, "Has God rejected His people?" And he says emphatically, "By no means." And that sets the theme for the rest of the chapter. And then in verses three through six, really the second half of verse two through verse six, which is the extent to which we're going to cover this morning, he talks about the saving of some, primarily the the, the remnant believing Israel the saving of some and in the last part of verses 1 through 10 beginning in verse 7 he talks about the hardening of others so this morning we're talking about the saving of some out of ethnic Israel but then he talks in verses 7 through 10 about the hardening of others so that kind of gives us a framework let's read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11 we're going to read this morning through verse 6 Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Grace would no longer be grace. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the privilege of worshiping you already this morning in song. And through the elements of the Lord's Supper, we thank you for that gift to the body of Christ to remember your son and to proclaim faith in him. And now we ask, Father, that you would keep us in that place of worship, May you be our singular focus to see you magnified and glorified, to see your Son, Jesus Christ, exalted in our hearts and minds and souls. Father, may you attend the reading of your word with your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, but beyond that, to transform us to look more like your Son, Jesus, so that you might be glorified in and through us in an even greater way. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul begins chapter 11 by asking this rhetorical question Has God rejected his people? Now, what precipitates this question? What leads Paul, in the course of what he's been saying in this letter, to ask this question? Well, to find out, we have to go back to what we just read at the end of chapter 10. That's part of our context here for the beginning of chapter 11. and the closing verses of chapter 10, we looked at it last week. Paul has just finished a lament. A lament that his fellow kinsmen, according to the flesh, his fellow Israelites were outside of God's family. Incredibly. That God's chosen people were no longer God's chosen people. What was going on? He was lamenting that at the end of chapter 10 he began in verse 16 by saying but they have not all obeyed the gospel they referring to his ethnic brothers in physical israel he goes on in verse 18 to ask have they not heard and he says indeed they have for their voice has gone out To all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. A quote from Psalm 19, where he talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. So he says, they've heard, they just didn't accept, they didn't believe. In verse 19, he asks, but did Israel not understand? And he quotes from Moses and Israel to say, and and Isaiah to say that they are without excuse. But then he closes chapter 10 in verse 21 with... But of Israel, he says, all day long, I, God, have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So in those closing verses of chapter 10, he's referring to ethnic Israel. He's referring to the physical descendants of Abraham. And he closes with that picture of God holding out his hands, symbolic of an invitation for ethnic Israel to repent and return to him, And yet, they remain in that description that Paul ends with, a disobedient and contrary people. So now, in the very next verse, at the first verse of chapter 11, Paul puts forth his rhetorical question. Has God rejected his people? In other words, if Israel is obstinate in her rebellion and remains in her place of disobedience and contrariness... Does this mean that God has rejected his people? That's the question that Paul poses in verse 1. And he follows it up with an emphatic no. He says, by no means. And so the declaration is given right here at the outset of chapter 11. God has not rejected his people, referring to ethnic Israel. And, and this will be the theme that is going to carry us through this entire chapter, almost to the end of chapter 11. Now, something that we should note here about this declaration that Paul makes in the first verse of chapter 11, that God has not rejected his people. One of the things that we should note about that declaration is that it should look very similar to the declaration that Paul made at the outset of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 6, where he said... It is not as though the word of God has failed. Remember that? What precipitated that declaration from Paul? Well, it was very similar. Paul had been lamenting in the first five verses of chapter 9 that his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh were outside the family of God. He said "They're, they're, they're accursed and cut off from Christ. And that so grieves me that I wish I could take their place that I could be accursed and cut off from Christ if it would save them. And he laments over that. And then Paul describes the Israelites as those who had been given all of the privileges of being God's chosen people. He said they were given the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He's got, he goes on to say, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is over all, blessed forever. In other words, they had all the blessings of being God's chosen people. But now they're accursed and they're cut off from God. Instead of being inside the family of God, now they're outside the family of God. And Lee laments over that. But in the middle of his lament, in the, at the beginning of chapter 9 verse 6, he declares, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, God's not breaking his promises to Israel. Even though Israel was now outside the family of God, instead of being the chosen nation of God, this doesn't mean that God's breaking his promises. It doesn't mean that God is breaking his covenant. This doesn't mean that the word of God has failed. And remember, what was the reason that Paul gave in chapter 9? for why, even though Israel was no longer in the family of God, why it was that God's word has not failed in this case. He told us in the second half of chapter 9, verse 6. He said, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Remember, we unpacked that. His reason for that is not all Israel is Israel. He told us that there is a national ethnic Israel, those who are descendants of Abraham by birth, but within that, there is also a spiritual Israel, those whom he has chosen, those whom he has chosen by, by grace, and those who are descendants of Abraham, but not by birth, but by faith. And Paul went on in chapter 9 to give... Examples of this from the Old Testament. First, examples from the life of Moses and his sons, and then examples from the life of Isaac and his sons. And then the rest of chapter 9 and 10 went on to really deal with the implications of there being this this spiritual elect Israel within larger national ethnic Israel. And all the ramifications of what that meant and, and, and how was someone in spiritual Israel. And he explained that it's, that it's only by God's unconditional election of them to be part of spiritual Israel. And that's what chapter 9 and 10 were all about. But now in chapter 11, Paul is returning to this discussion of the larger ethnic Israel. And I think there's ample evidence from the context to conclude that at least in verse 1, I think we can agree that what Paul is referring to when he talks about his people, he's referring to ethnic Israel here. As you're reading through from chapter 9 and on into 10 and on to 11, we're, we're taking little snapshots each week. But sometimes when you do that, you can miss the forest for the trees. So if you back up and you just read, read this as it was intended, as a letter, and you read through chapter 9 and then on into chapter 10 and then straight into chapter 11, I think it reads most naturally that when he refers to his people in verse 1, he's referring to ethnic Israel. And so when he asks in verse 1, has God rejected his people? I think we find ourselves at the very same crisis that we found ourselves at in verse 5 of chapter 9. As in chapter 9, so here, Paul has just lamented the fact that his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh were outside of God's family. Lamenting the unbelief and obstinacy of Israel. And so the declaration that he gave then in chapter 9 verse 6 that the word of God has not failed is in parallel really with this declaration that he makes in verse 1 of chapter 11 that God has not rejected his people. It's really another way of saying the exact same thing. In fact, you really could take both of those declarations and swap them in their context. In reality, at the beginning of chapter 9 verse 6 Paul could have said But it is not as though God has rejected his people because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Would have meant the same thing, right? Same here in chapter 11, verse 1. Paul could have said, I asked then, has the word of God failed? By no means. Says the same thing. Same point gets across. He's saying the same thing in both of these declarations, but just in different ways. But what is the evidence that Paul puts forth of the veracity of these two declarations. What's the evidence that God's word has not failed and that God has not rejected his people? Well, the first bit of evidence we've already covered. Paul covered it in chapter nine, verse six, not all Israel is Israel, we've covered that. The second bit of evidence comes here from chapter 11. So I want us to look at that beginning with this passage this morning this further evidence that we have that God has not rejected his people and that the word of God has not failed. So look at verse 1 again. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? Now, what follows next is this further evidence of that conclusion. He says, for I myself, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, Paul says, God has not rejected his people. And I'm proof positive of that. Look at me. God has not rejected his people because I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And yet God saw fit to bring me face to face with Jesus Christ. God saw fit to bring me who was persecuting Jesus and persecuting those who were following Jesus. He saw fit to bring me to saving faith in him. And now I am Again child of God by grace through faith how can God have rejected his people when he hasn't rejected me Paul says Paul says I am a living breathing example of the fact that God has not rejected ethnic Israel the word rejected here means to shove aside or to cast aside if you got if you got an old King James version that's that's how it translates that to cast aside his people. The only other time that Paul uses this word is in his first letter to young Timothy as he warns young Timothy about those who would reject the gospel, that they would shipwreck their faith. He says they will, they will cast aside the gospel. They will cast aside Christ. That's what that word Means. And so Paul says here, God hasn't cast aside his people. God hasn't rejected ethnic Israel. And by proof of that, by example of that, he says, look at me. He has graciously and sovereignly overcome my disobedience and my contrariness and saved me and made me his again. Paul says, I was a part of that disobedient and contrary people to whom God was holding out his hands all day long and by his sovereign grace he chose to make me his and we know this to be true even today God is not shoved aside ethnic Israel God is not cast aside physical descendants of Abraham Jews today are still coming to faith in Jesus Christ. God is still in the business of sovereignly and graciously overcoming their obstinacy and disobedience and contrariness by bringing them to faith in his son, Jesus Christ. He is still today showing up on figurative roads to Damascus today and radically saving ethnic Israelites, And making them spiritual Israelites. Changing physical descendants of Abraham into spiritual descendants of Abraham by giving them faith to trust in Christ. And praise God for that. May he continue to do so. But Paul follows this up in verse 2 with this phrase. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now when we see that word foreknew, it should be familiar to us, right? because we saw that same word in chapter 9 verse excuse me chapter 8 verse 29 towards the end of chapter 8 there paul said for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and back then when we when we covered that passage we said that god's foreknowledge of us was wrapped up in our salvation because his foreknowing us was the first link in that unbreakable chain of how God saves sinners. Remember? He said, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then the next verse, all those whom he predestined, he also called. And all those whom he called, he also justified. All those who he justified, he also glorified. And so because of how Paul uses the word foreknowledge in chapter 8, when we see it now in chapter 11 we immediately think what? Oh, well, he must be referring to the elect here. He must must be referring to those of spiritual Israel because that would make sense, right? That God has not rejected the elect, his, his elect. That certainly would make sense. And indeed, that is how some interpret this verse. And I would submit to you that they may be correct in doing so. But I believe that perhaps Paul here is not simply referring to elect Israel, but he's referring to that larger ethnic Israel when he uses the word his people. To me, that's the most natural reading, again, of verse 1. Certainly, we've already covered the fact that he was talking about ethnic Israel at the end of chapter 10, ending with that picture At the end of chapter 10, of God holding out his hands to to a disobedient and contrary people. That's that's not elect Israel. That's not the church that he's holding out his hands to. He's holding out his hands to physical Israel, to ethnic Israel there at the end of chapter 10. And so at the beginning of verse 1, he asks, has God rejected his people then? By no means, he says. And the example, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. That's ethnic Israel. And and, and and just in case we're we're tempted to think that he's referring there to being a spiritual descendant of Abraham, he adds this phrase, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin being one of only two tribes, the other being the tribe of Judah, that remain faithful to God. When the other tribes of Israel stayed in the northern kingdom and and became unfaithful and broke covenant with Yahweh. The tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin stayed in the southern kingdom and remained faithful at least for a time. But there's no way for us to read that including the phrase a member of the tribe of Benjamin and conclude that he's referring there to elect Israel. He's referring to ethnic Israel there in chapter 1. Now, because I think that's clear in chapter 1, I think it's most natural for us to conclude that he doesn't switch gears in the very next verse in verse 2 and begin talking about elect Israel when he talks about his people. It's the very same phrase. His people in verse 1 most naturally is the same as his people in verse 2. And so I think it's most natural to conclude that verse 2 is also talking about ethnic Israel. So what does that mean? That means we're concluding then, or at least I'm concluding, that when he says in verse 2 God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew he's still referring to ethnic Israel but that presents us with a problem doesn't it do you see it how can ethnic Israel be his people whom he foreknew because we just covered that foreknowledge when we think of foreknowledge we think of elect we think of Salvation because of chapter 8, right? So how can that refer to ethnic Israel? Now, we know that there are elect among ethnic Israel. There are those who come to faith in Jesus Christ from ethnic Israel. Paul is an example of that. But we simply cannot refer to all of ethnic Israel as elect. That, that option is not open to us biblically. So could it be that God's foreknowledge of ethnic Israel here is pointing to a time in the future when an ethnic Israel of the the future will be rolled into spiritual Israel. Could he be pointing here to a, a time in which ethnic Israel comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by grace through faith? And I believe that's exactly what he's referring to. Now, admittedly, we can't get that that from the text that we're looking at here. We have to read this text in its fuller context, which means reading what came before it in in chapter 10, but also reading what comes after it in the remainder of chapter 11. And when we do that, when we read what comes before it and what comes after it, We learn then not only that Paul is referring here to ethnic Israel, but we also learn that Paul is pointing to a time in the future when all ethnic Israelites who are alive at that point in time in the future will be saved. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now we don't we're not going to Dive into all of that passage and unpack it this morning. We'll get to that in a a few weeks. But this morning, from those verses, I must say that I believe Paul is saying that there is coming a time in the future. And we're talking here about the the end times here. This is a reference, I believe, to to the time of the end. He says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, when the gospel has penetrated to the ends of the earth when the work of the Great Commission is done and complete at that time in the future, there will be a massive conversion of Jews to faith in Jesus Christ. And all of ethnic Israel living at that point in time will be saved. Now, they won't be saved in any different way. They're not going to be saved because of their sacrifices in the temple. They're not going to be saved because of their law keeping or any of that. They will be saved only by faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, just like we are. But I believe it's saying that they will all be saved. I believe that's what verses 25 and 26 are saying to us. All Israel will be saved. Now I'll step back for a second. And know that as I look out on you, I know I made some of you just very happy. Others of you I've made very scared. And some of you are wondering what's the big deal at all. Well, if you are of the amillennial perspective, I want to set your mind at ease. Rest assured that I'm not putting on my dispensational hat here. And those of you who prefer a dispensational hermeneutic, don't get too excited. Just because I said all Israel We'll be saved. And to those of you who are wondering what's the big deal, we'll just hang on, because we're going to be on a theological roller coaster in this chapter. There, there, are, there are some theological landmines in chapter 11 that we in this room are going to need to wrestle with, and that will require us to tread carefully and likewise, to tread with humility. I think there are three things that, three questions that we have to wrestle with as we approach chapter 11, not just this week, but really for the rest of this chapter. And depending on how we answer these questions, in large part is going to determine to a a great degree how we interpret this passage and what we take away from this passage. And it'll be significantly different depending on how we answer these questions. So these questions are important. Number one, which Israel is he referring to? Paul is going to refer to Israel in a number of different ways in chapter 11. He's going to call it Israel. He's going to call them the the descendants of Abraham. He's going to call them his people. He's going to refer to them with the pronoun they. He's going to talk to them as the olive branch, the, the branches of an olive tree. He's going to refer to them as my fellow Jews. And sometimes he's talking about spiritual Israel. And sometimes he's talking about ethnic Israel. And depending on which one we decide he's referring to is going to, to a large degree, determine how we interpret the passage and the meaning that we walk away with. The second question that we've got to wrestle with is what time is he referring to? At at points in chapter 11, he's going to be talking about the past. At other points, he's going to be talking about the future. And at some points, it's clear that he's going to be talking about the past. Past, present, and future, whichever one I didn't say. He's talking about all three of those elements of time. And depending on which element of time we think he's referring to will likewise have a great impact on how we interpret the meaning of this passage. But the third question that, we've, that we're going to wrestle with, just simply because of what is written here, is what will the end look like? If Paul is talking about the end... To some degree, at some point in this chapter. And I, and I believe that all of us, regardless of our perspective, we're going to agree that at least to some degree he's talking about end times. We just might not agree the, the, agree the degree to which he's talking about the end. But at least, at least to some degree he is. And so if he is at all talking about the end, we're going to be asking what will the end look like? And it's here that I want to caution us to simply let this passage speak for itself. Because this passage touches on end times, we're going to look at different eschatological perspectives here. We're not going to focus on that. But as Paul touches on that, the, the degree to which I think he's touching on that, we're going to wrestle with some of that. But I want to caution us not to put on our Premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial glasses and read this passage through those lenses. Let's try our best, and I'm going to try my best, my hardest, to simply let this passage stand on its own and let it speak for itself. There's really a key word in verse 25 that's appropriate here for us to remind ourselves of, and that's the word mystery. This is a mystery. It's a mystery to us. Regardless of our interpretation here and what meaning we walk away with, it's a mystery, Paul says. And so let us approach this mystery with humility and with wonder and let this mystery evoke worship from us as we walk through these pages together. Fair enough? We good so far? All right. So... I read verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew within the context of verses 25 and 26, all Israel will be saved. And I hear two things from that. Number one, I hear that he's speaking about ethnic Israel. Number two, I hear that he's referring to some point in the future where there will be a massive salvific conversion of Jews to faith in Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, now back to the example that Paul gives of himself. Paul says, God has not rejected his people look at me, I'm an example of that. But now we see that Paul is an example of God not rejecting his people in two ways. First, the one that we've already covered, he's an example that part of ethnic Israel of any age, whether it's Paul's days or our days or future days, part of ethnic Israel of any age is also part of spiritual Israel. God has not rejected his people because he still Pursues some of his, um, of his elect from among ethnic Israel. And he's still doing that today. And Paul says, I'm an example of that. But Paul is also an example of this because of verses 25 and 26 in another way. He, as a saved ethnic Israelite, his salvation as a physical Jew points to a day prophetically When all of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, living at that point in time in the future, will also be saved. In other words, God's saving of some from ethnic Israel today is pointing to when he will save all of ethnic Israel in that future time. And Paul says, I'm an example of this. But then he goes on in this passage to give us another example of that. Look at the rest of verse verse 2 and then on into verse 3. It says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And now here's the second example. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. So this is a reference to that familiar great story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal recorded in 1st Kings chapter 18 and 19 And you remember how the story goes Elijah challenges the 450 prophets of Baal to a barbecue contest he says let's see whose God can bring down fire from heaven to consume the sacrificial bull and so the prophets of Baal prepare their altar And they cry out to Baal from morning until noon. But we never hear from Baal, never see from Baal, and no fire from heaven ever comes down. And so then Elijah prepares his altar. The prophet of the Lord prepares his altar. And he's alone. The the northern kingdom, the, the, the Israelites had already killed most of all of the other prophets. So he's alone. And he prepares his altar to Yahweh, to the Lord. And just to make it interesting, he takes four barrels of water and he pours it all over the the altar. Drenches the sacrifice in the altar. And he does that three times. So it's drenched with water, dripping with water. Then he cries out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, for the sake of your great name, come down and consume this sacrifice. And fire comes down out of heaven. It's a great scene. Fire comes down out of, out of heaven, consumes not only the sacrifice, but the altar itself and every last drop of water. It's an amazing scene. And then right after that, Elijah, in response to them killing all of the prophets of the Lord, he has all 450 prophets of Baal slaughtered with the sword. But then as the story goes on in that chapter, word, word gets back to Queen Jezebel Of what had happened. Queen Jezebel was King Ahab's of the northern kingdom of Israel, King Ahab's queen, his wife. And word gets back to her that Elijah has slaughtered all of her prophets. And so she puts out word that now she's out for Elijah. And incredibly, though he wasn't scared of the 450 prophets, he's scared of Jezebel. He gets scared to death. Because after all, Jezebel was the one who initiated the slaughter of, of almost all of the prophets of Yahweh. And now she's after him. She's proven that she will do that. And now she's after him. Well, Elijah runs and hides. And he hides in a cave in a mountain. The Lord sends angels to minister to him. The Lord himself ministers to Elijah in the gentle whisper of the wind. But as he's hiding out in that cave, that's the setting... For Elijah, doing what Paul, as, as how Paul puts it here, he appeals to God against Israel. And what does he say to God in that setting? He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. And so he's, he's complaining against Israel. Because remember, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are the king and queen of Israel of the northern kingdom he says listen this is what they've done they have been unfaithful to you in fact as is recorded in first kings 19 Elijah also says they have they've broken your covenants they've thrown down your altars they've killed your prophets and I alone am left he's complaining to God about Israel's unfaithfulness and breaking of their covenant with him But look at how God replies to Elijah in verse 4 of Romans 11. What is God's reply to him, Paul asks. Here is God's reply to Elijah. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God God reveals to Elijah, I've kept a remnant for myself. I've, I've, I've got those who are mine. They're still there. And then Paul brings that back to the present with verse 5. So too, at the present time, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Remnant here meaning a portion kept out of the whole. That's what the word a remnant means. He's referring there to spiritual Israel. So now we're going back and forth, right? Now he's referring to the elect. Paul says, just as God kept a remnant for himself in Elijah's day, so he has kept a remnant for himself in our day, in the present time. And this remnant is chosen by grace. Those three words being kind of a mini recap of all that Paul has been telling us in chapter chapter 9 and 10 about God's unconditional sovereignty over salvation. That those who are saved are saved because of sovereign choice on the part of God and sovereign grace on the part of God. But again, what is Paul teaching us in this passage? What's the theme of chapter 11? What's the point of what he's teaching us in this section? The point is God has not rejected Israel. And we've said the Israel he's talking about here is ethnic Israel. And so he gives us first an example of Paul as evidence of that. Paul's salvation is proof positive that God has not cast aside his people and he's still saving those from ethnic Israel. But also, contextually, Paul's conversion also points to a future time in which he's going to save all of ethnic Israel alive at that time. And now the story of Elijah and the remnant is providing the same kind of evidence. This remnant, chosen by grace, is evidence that God is not cast aside ethnic Israel but contextually because of verses 25 and 26 it also this remnant itself also eschatologically points to a time in which all Israel will be saved but we're reminded here that regardless of when the saving happens whether whether it's in the past or the present or whether it's in the future it will be by God's sovereign choice and it will be by God's sovereign grace he says this rem- remnant was chosen by grace and then he explains what he means by that in verse 6 he says but if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace <clears throat> excuse me grace would no longer be grace He says works is antithetical to this gospel of grace. If all Israel will be saved, and that's what I'm going to argue verses 25 and 26 is saying to us. But if that's true, that all physical descendants of Abraham alive at some point in the future will be saved. If that's true, then it will only happen by God's sovereign choice and God's sovereign grace. As he sovereignly and unconditionally sets on them his electing grace and gives them the faith, the trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. It will not happen because an ethnic Israel in an eschatological future all of a sudden begin to perfectly obey the Torah. It will not happen at all because of works. It will only happen because of grace. Now, We've said a lot. How do, we, how do we apply a passage of scripture like this? I want to give you a couple of points of application to wrestle with with your base group this week. The first is I think in light of Paul putting forth his life and as, as an example that God has not rejected ethnic Israel, we ought to consider our example. We ought to consider our life what do I mean by that what I mean is if it were to be argued today that God has rejected you fill in the blank whatever group you're from whether it's from ethnic Israel or non-ethnic Israel which will be the Gentiles I'm not a part of ethnic Israel and so for me I'm a Gentile ethnically if you will and so I should ask myself if it is argued that God has rejected the Gentiles? Could my life be held up as an example of the fact that no, no, in fact, he has not rejected the Gentiles because look at Ken. Could your life be held up as an example that God has not rejected ethnic Israel or Gentiles or whatever group you're from? Could your life be an example of that? Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a follower of Christ? Of being a spirit-indwelt believer? Of being a lover of God? We are not saved by works. Paul is abundantly clear here. We are not saved by works. and, And we're not saved by spiritual fruit. But if there is no fruit and there are no works... And what evidence do we point to that we are genuinely his? Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruit. So is there fruit in our lives that gives evidence of saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord? Second point of application is to let the mystery of God's sovereign will bring you to worship. Let the mystery of God's sovereign plan embedded in this passage lead you to worship. Don't get hung up on eschatology and theological labels. Remember that this is a mystery. And that this mystery should, as all mysteries should, it should lead us to awe and wonder. And it's, that's exactly where it led Paul. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, at the end of this chapter, Paul breaks forth in worship in his doxology. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen, Paul says. The mystery of sovereign grace, the mystery that God would make a way for any of us sinners, both the mystery of how he could and why he would should lead us to awe and wonder and worship as it did for Paul. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word here. We thank you for the reminder that regardless of when you choose to bring somebody across the line of faith, regardless of when you Transform their eternal destiny. It is not by what we do. It is not by who we are, whether we are Gentile or Jew, whether we are of ethnic Israel or not. We are only rescued by your sovereign choice and your sovereign grace. And we thank you for that. We are in awe that you would make Away, for such a one as me. We are in awe as Paul was that you would see fit to overcome our obstinance and rebellion and disobedience and contrariness and reveal yourself in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, and bring us to a saving faith in him and transform us from enemies into children, from sinners into saints, and give us his righteousness and take away from us the penalty of our sins. God, we are escorted to a place of worship because of that. We are blown away by the grace embedded in the gospel. We thank you for it, Lord. And as we seek to live for you, as we seek these fruits and these works that give evidence of saving faith. Lord, may we, may we stay in that place of being reliant on your grace. Even as we seek to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. May you keep us surrendered to this good news, this gospel of grace. Lord, we pray for those among us, those in our homes, those in our neighborhoods and schools and workplaces and communities who are outside the family of God. Lord, may you move in us to share with them this good news. And Lord, may your spirit move in them to bring them across the line of faith, to reclaim them, Lord, as worshipers of you. God, we're blown away by the grace that you've shown us in Christ. May we now live in light of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.